by God's divine providence and how God brings people into our lives at the precise moment when we need them. I first met Stan Matheny when he was still the choir master at St. Mary of Victories. He was in the process of transitioning out of that position, which he had held, I believe, for over a decade, if not longer, and was coming here to worship with us at the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine. Uh, what he brought with him is a lifetime of expertise, which in truth is the best way to learn the sacred liturgy and the sacred mysteries is simply by living them. In addition to his lived experience, he also is trained and has studied and has lectured on the very topics that he's going to address to us this evening and the subsequent two Tuesday evenings on the divine office and especially its relationship to the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, it is not an overstatement for me to proclaim about him that he is one of the most learned and most expert men in chant probably in the United States of America. Uh, he might disagree with that statement, I don't know, I'll let him decide if he wants to accept that or not. Um, I feel comfortable saying that because of my experience with people who know and those who don't. Uh, and reinforces even more God's divine providence that he would bring him here to our kind of little obscure and tiny oratory which becomes less tiny and less obscure as time goes on. So, um, I've said entirely too much. Please know how very grateful Stan I am to your presence here and his generosity, especially at this time of the year, your willingness to be here as well so you can continue to share this. And of course, just as a little bit of plug, we are doing this at the exact same time that we have now begun praying Vespers each Sunday evening here at church at 4.30. I know given the fact that we come from all over the Archdiocese, literally, it is hard sometimes to make that commitment, but I would encourage you, when your schedules permit once or twice all the months and Sundays, to come and pray Vespers with our Scola, who is beautifully leading us. Stand with me. I think you all have a copy of the top sheet. At the, you will see the prayer Veni Sancti Spiritus on that. So if you stand, we'll begin by praying the Veni Sancti. This is the prayer the church asks us to pray before any, undertaking any course of study in any subject because we invoke the help of the Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of knowledge and understanding in our confirmation. Veni Sancti Spiritus, Replitorum, corde fidelium, et tuia moris in eis ignimaxende, emite spiritum tuum et creabuntur. Oremus Deus, qui corde fidelium sancti spiritus illustrationi docuisti, da nobis signorum spiritu, rectus apre, et deo sempre consolazione gaudere per Christum dominum nostrum. Regina, sine labe concepta. Regina, sine labe concepta. Regina, sine labe concepta. 
seated. Have a seat. We also append to the Veni Sancti an invocation to our Blessed Mother, who is, of course, the seat of wisdom and the perfect indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In a little bit of what some might call serendipity, but I call divine providence, today is an especially good day to talk about the divine office. Because if the divine office had a feast day, today would be that day. This feast of the dedication of the Basilica of the Holy Savior, popularly known as St. John in the Lateran, under the patronage of both Saints John, Evangelist and Baptist, has, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, in its office one of the most perfect theologies one could give, both of who we are as church and what we do in worship. In addition, you're sitting inside one of the most perfect books on the sacred liturgy you could possibly read. If you but knew how to read, these stones would talk to you because these stones are a living book, maybe a subject for another night. To our subject at hand, an overview of the divine office. Deo Valente, this will be a discussion in three parts. First, a brief overview of history and theology of the divine office. The second, the nature of sacred time and the calendar. And the third part, structure and practice. And on the third night, we will actually sing an hour of the office. Part three will also discuss how individual prayers express what we present this evening. The poet Horace, among other classical authors, wrote that epic poetry should begin in medias res, in the middle of things. His reasoning for this was that this technique grabs the attention of an audience quickly and gets them straight into the action of the story. Later in the text, a writer can fill in the background, adding those details that are needed to more fully understand the context of the story. Homer and Virgil are, of course, the stellar examples of this, as any student of the classics will know. And while this talk is certainly not epic poetry, we'll follow this advice. I'll warn you in advance, I'm notorious for wandering down little rabbit holes when I speak. So students through the years have found great delight in getting me to wander down those rabbit holes and, and drift off the subject. And they have a little contest of how long they could keep me where I'm not supposed to be. Eventually, I will return to the topic at hand, so I beg your pardon if such rabbit holes annoy you. A personal note from me. I began praying the office when I was 15, so it's been a daily habit of mine, more or less, for 60 years almost. Paradoxically, I find it both comforting and uncomfortably provocative. From time to time, I've tried to analyze why that's the case to learn what it is that attracts me so deeply. At times, I even tried to stop. Well, that worked out just about as Mark Twain said about smoking. I don't know what the problem is to stop smoking. I've done it any number of times. And that's just been my experience with the divine office. Each time I would try to stop, I found myself returning more quickly to the practice, drawn as though by some irresistible force. I still can't tell you exactly why I feel it's so fundamental in my life. I can only affirm that it's a special gift that binds me to myself, to the Roman Catholic faith in which I was born, baptized, and raised, and despite our occasional disappointments with one another, 
in which I am still ultimately bound to God. And as the hymn says, the tie that binds is blessed indeed. Why are we talking about the office now? And there seems to be a lot of discussion about the office in some unusual quarters lately. The 20th century witnessed the undoing of Catholicism as it had evolved in the prior 19 centuries. Bit by bit, the carefully woven strands of the garment, one might almost argue seamless, of the Roman rite were picked apart and given new meanings based on some very unfortunate misunderstandings. Recently, this has gone even further. Part of larger efforts to undermine completely the Judeo-Christian foundation of our Western civilization. Now, the reasons for this are many and complex, and this is not the time nor place to analyze them. But one key result of all these efforts has been that over the course of the century, a majority of Catholics were deprived of the basic knowledge and understanding of what Father Faber's famous hymn calls the faith of our fathers. And for the most part, the clergy have not fared much better than the laity. One of the principal problems that resulted from this lack of understanding is that the rich traditional tapestry of Catholic public prayer was reduced to the celebration of mass and a smattering of popular devotions. Now once that happens, the mass is taken out of its proper context and the understanding of, of the mass is substantially weakened. From there, it's a much easier step than to eliminate the traditional Roman rite and to substitute a new rite, stitched in a patchwork that included defective, distorted, and even false understandings. Popular devotions became less and less popular until they disappeared in most places. Even the most holy rosary, that greatest of our devotions, fell into decline. And where it did remain, it took on an undue importance and an unbalanced value in being used to try to fill a void it was never intended to fill and never could. The agenda of the so-called reformers to adapt the church to the rampant and reductivist relativism of the zeitgeist, of the spirit of the age, was and still sadly is relentless. So now, despite numerous attempts to paper over the problems with a variety of rationalizations in a myriad of documents, decrees, and other efforts, some more worthy than others, the sad reality of where we are remains. Singing Sunday Vespers is one small step to attempt to redress this destructive force, but we hope an important one. If you look at that graphic that you have there in front of you, you will see some items that we're going to refer to as we launch into this presentation, because it, you will see the center of the mass, but you will see around it a crown with the hours of the divine office. Because the reality is that the divine office is the frame, the crown, without which the jewel of the holy sacrifice of the mass can never be adequately understood. By the way, the uh, loss of the office as common prayer is not unique to the Roman rite. A recent Maronite liturgical commentator lamenting the ongoing deluge of Maronite liturgical changes remarked, there's now a steady stream of proposed rites which all replace the first half of the Eucharistic liturgy and have an anaphora, a canon, 
tacked on at the end because mass has come to be seen as the only real form of prayer. Whereas a 16th century Jesuit commented on how surprised he was at the ubiquitous lay attendance at the divine offices in the Maronite church. Take note, the Maronites were not alone in that ubiquitous attendance. So what is this divine office we're talking about? The compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, a rather handy little Q&A formatted document done by a, a man named Ratzinger. The name may mean something to you. Uh, it's, it's pretty well done, worth your reading. It defines the divine office as the public and common prayer of the church, the prayer of Christ with his body, the church. Through the divine office, the mystery of Christ, which we celebrate in the Eucharist, sanctifies and transforms the whole of each day. This definition stresses one very important element of the office, the sanctification of time. Namely, sacred time, or what the Greeks call kairos, versus sequential time, what they call chronos. And this latter type is what the English word time most often brings to mind. We are going to talk a lot more about that in part two. Older definitions of the office include other important characteristics. And one good one is the divine office is the official, regular, daily cycle of vocal common prayer that the church defines in a fixed form. Along with the mass, it has formed part of the church's public worship from the earliest times. Christians of both Eastern and Western traditions, Catholics, Orthodox, Anglicans, and others, celebrate the office under a variety of names. In this series, to be clear, we are speaking about the divine office of the Roman Rite as found in the Breviarium Romanum. And of course, here at the Oratory, that means probably prior to the changes of 1955. We'll mention other forms in passing and have a bit more to say about them when we speak on the structure of the office. In the Roman Rite, clergy and some religious orders are bound by canon law to pray the office, but the laity are strongly encouraged to pray it as well. This is absolutely nothing new. There is a long tradition of doing this from apostolic times. And this call has been repeated many times since. Just to mention a few of the more recent ones, the Baltimore Synod of 1868 mandated sung vespers, mandated sung vespers in all American Catholic churches. That's Sunday vespers. The second plenary of council of Baltimore in that same year decreed that complete vespers must be sung on Sundays and feasts in all churches as far as possible after the Roman fashion, and that Vespers never be replaced by any other exercise of piety. For the solemn worship, quote, for the solemn worship approved by bishops of the church and flourishing through so many centuries must be deemed pleasing to Almighty God, end quote. The third plenary council of Baltimore, the one that published the excellent Baltimore Catechism, even published a manual of prayers a type of office for the laity. Just recently, the oh, pardon me, just recently it has been republished by Tan under this title, The Little Office of Baltimore. This is a wonderful little volume, and I brought a copy along if anybody cares to look at it after the presentation. The Catechism 
of the Catholic Church, the full catechism, quoting Vatican II, says very plainly, quote, lay faithful are encouraged to recite the divine office, either with priests, among themselves, or even individually, end quote. The eminent Laszlo Dobshai wrote in his commentary on Bunini's changes to the liturgy, in the most splendid periods of the liturgy, he begins, Christian communities afforded the same reverence and attention to the office as to the Mass. The Mass undoubtedly surpasses any other service of worship as to its ontological meaning and effects in the order of divine grace, but the potentials of the office are greater with respect to its psychological and catechetical influence. There's a long history to support that, that rather powerful statement, end quote. I'll give you one example from popular history that proves, uh, proves uh, Dubshai's point. There's a marvelous book. Unfortunately, it's only in French, but it's absolutely brilliant book. If you read French, I, I highly recommend you can get it online called Chanter Toujours, To Sing Always. It tells the history of the power of Vespers sung by the faithful in small French villages between the 16th and 19th centuries. Well worth your time. It's how the office was powerful in the lives of ordinary people. If you, my emails on one of those documents, if you ever want links to any of these things, you just email me and I'll send them. We hope to discuss this uh, little example further uh, in our third session. Now let's return to that earlier definition and take apart the elements. First, it's vocal prayer, not silent. The church requires vocal recitation the pronunciation of each word, those bound by canonical obligation must, as a bare minimum, move their lips when they read the office in order to fulfill their obligation. Obviously, those bound to office in choir are obliged to sing the, the hours. Second, it's a daily cycle. The church has fixed these prayers for every day of the years and for certain hours of each day. It's not something we do on just days when we feel like it. Three, it's common prayer. It's part of the church's official public liturgical prayer, even when prayed alone. And we're going to talk about that ad nauseum here as we go along. The church defines the form to distinguish the official prayers of obligation from those which the faithful may choose according to their taste. For those who pray bound to a specific rule of life, it is regulated by that rule. In fact, the word regular means uh, rule from the Latin regula, and some religious are bound to a certain type of the office by their vows. And finally, it's a fixed form. Although the office has a lot more variety of texts and chants than does the Mass, the Church gives us a basic structure for the hours. This daily prayer goes by many different names in, in different places. In the Latin West, the most common term has been divinum officium, the divine office. This name has a long history, and those two words each have specific meanings. The Latin word officium has a base meaning of duty, but not with the connotation of burden, the way we usually use the word in English. Originally, the word officium might, uh, pardon me, the word officium referred to a service or duty required to be done in public on behalf of the Senate and the people of Rome by properly deputed public officials. So maybe a better translation might be offering or service because these duties included and 
they were done by government officials, senator, consul, praetor, military, etc. They included offering sacrifices to the gods in the temples of the, of the uh, Roman Republic, something inextricably linked to the government because in Rome, and that's why the persecutions were so violent, worship of the gods was an essential element of being a Roman. And to not worship the gods was considered treason. And the officium, the divinum officium, was a duty to the gods. Very important duty in service. It did not mean, oh, by the way, the, the, the Greek word that just mentioned in passing, the Greek word for this was liturgia. And it comes from two Greek words, ergon work and uh, lao. But it was lao in the dative, not the uh, genitive, for those of you who are grammarians. Uh, so the meaning of it, it is not, does not mean the work of the people. It, me it means work done for the people. It's a dative, folks. That means you do it for something. It doesn't belong to the... It's not, not the work done by the people or of the people, it's for the people. So given this meaning, it should not surprise us that in many languages, Catholics use the term offices to include everything that happens liturgically, including the Mass. You'll see it in many European cathedrals, depending on what language you're in. Many times it's just have the top office. The French are uh, prominent for that. Because the Mass is the apex of our public duty to worship. The word divine tells us that we're doing here a public service out of a duty we owe to God. As Catholics, that duty is rooted in our baptismal dedication to him as a part of our nature as a priestly people. As St. Peter reminds us, and we hear this so often in the Easter season, vos adam genus electum, for you are a chosen race, you are regale sacerdotium, you are a royal priesthood, a holy people, populus acquisitionis, the people he has acquired so that you may announce his strength, you may announce his virtutes, his powers. He who has called you from darkness into a marvelous light, his own light. We do it both then from our sense of obligation, giving God his due, and from a sense of our ready and willing acceptance of our responsibility to serve others. And those two things are inseparable. We derive satisfaction, and in both senses of that word, from the doing of it. The loss of the dual foundation of our identity as Catholics is perhaps the greatest damage done by the misguided liturgical changes after Vatican II. Far too many, a majority, I would hope to think not, but I'm afraid it's true, a majority, of those who come to Mass now come to get something rather than to give something. A new primary purpose of getting something out of it has replaced the correct primary purpose of giving God his due praise. Without the framework of the divine office to maintain this focus hour in and hour out, it's not a difficult switch to make. Other names for the office include the ecclesiastical office, the officium ecclesiasticum, because it was instituted by, belongs to, and is done on behalf of the church. Other names include St. Benedict's well-known term, opus dei, the work of God. And I had a a wise spiritual director once remarked, he said, you know, when you learn to pray the office, you're going to find it's about 90% opus and about 10% dei. And he was right. Sometimes it's just work. Other names include the agenda, the pensum servitutis, the ore, the ore canonici, the hours. This last name refers to the fact that the hours are mandated in canon law for certain persons in the church. 
by the way, the word hours, it comes from the Latin aura, which basically means a time of day, not necessarily a fixed unit of 60 minutes. It is also described as a sacrificium laudis, and that's become very popular lately, a sacrifice of praise, carrying on the work of the mass, the sacrificium ostiae, the sacrifice of the victim throughout the expanse of time. This term has become very widespread since Vatican II, as we heard in the definition from the Catechism of the Catholic Church earlier. Note, in the Roman canon, we also call the mass a sacrificium laudis during the memento of the living. This interesting element of the canon has evolved in our understanding over the millennia. Simple translations can never capture all the nuance and layers of meaning embedded in the language there. It's a lovely rabbit hole, we just don't have time. I, the Roman canon is one of the most fascinating things in the world to talk about, but uh, time, time is moving on. The most common name for the office in the Latin West, however, comes not for the office itself, but from the book from which it is most often prayed especially in private recitation, the breviarum romanum or the Roman breviary. The word breviary comes from an old Latin word breviarium, which means an abridgment or a compendium. The word had a lot of meanings assigned to it by early Christian writers, but the title breviary, as we use it today most often, it asked a book containing the entire canonical office, appears to date from around the 11th century. It was likely first used in this sense to note an abridgment made by Pope St. Gregory VII, Gregory Hildebrand, about the year 1080. This name was given to the divine office because this breviary form, this abridgment or compilation, is taken from a larger collection of books that make up the office, and they needed to put it into a small volume to carry around because the Franciscans, who were mendicant friars, needed something portable. This abridged office was based on the office of the Roman Curia, and by the 14th century had become widespread among the secular clergy, whence the, the word Roman in its name. It's the office found in the Roman breviary that we're now discussing. This compending, the office would have been sung from a number of books, usually about 10. There was a psaltery which had these psalms and canticles an antiphonary which had the antiphons that accompany the psalms, a hymnal with the hymns, once hymns became acceptable, the Romans resisted having hymns. The Romans didn't allow hymns in until sometime in the late 12th, early 13th century. The East had them from day one, but uh, the Romans are very conservative, were very conservative, and they resisted change. It had a lectionary which had the lessons of the first and second nocturnes of matins, a homilary, the patristic lessons of the second and third nocturnes, a legendary which had the lives of the saints or the Octa Sanctorum to be read on their feast days, a martyrology which was a calendar and an announcement of the saints for the following days with a brief one or two line bio. It had a book of collects for the prayers that end the hours and it had a book of rubrics, a guide for how to pray the office and last and not least, a customary more details on how the office was celebrated in a given place because the office was always adapted to the geography and the climate in which it was celebrated. Now today we have maybe remnants of some of these various books in our modern choir books. For example, we still have a psalterium, we have an antiphonarium, a hymnarium, a nocturnale, and so on for various parts of the office, for singing the office. And also we have a remnant in how their contents are arranged. These older books, however, did not have any standard edition. 
as would emerge after the invention of printing. Those older books, uh, pardon me, there was a great diversity of uses, texts, chants, and rubrics. Various attempts at standardization and uniformity have been made for the office through the centuries with widely varying degrees of success. And the debate about standardization rages on today, as we'll see again in parts two and three. So what's in the office? All the forms of the office are rooted in praying sacred scripture in a setting that draws on other elements of our tradition. This is done because Catholics and Orthodox have a radically different understanding of scripture than do Protestants. For us, the scriptures are literally what the Latin word means. Those bits of our tradition that are to be written down for handing on to the next generation. What has become known as the Bible is a bit of a misnomer. It's not a standalone book. It is an inseparable part of sacred tradition. Vatican II clearly reminds us that in the divine office, we experience the, quote, close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture, end quote. And we can draw from, quote, both of them flowing from the same divine wellspring, end quote. The Psalms are the core then of the office, and we'll talk about them quite a bit. The cycle of readings from sacred scripture provide us with a survey of the whole corpus of the scriptures over the course of the year. This is an important expression of the Catholic belief in the unity of the scriptures. The one part of scripture interprets the next part of scripture and they speak with one voice, una voce. The particulars of the office may vary widely among different rites and communities and according to different local and regional customs. Again, these presentations are just focusing on one form. The divine office is found in the Roman breviary. Now, as soon as I say that, I'm going to divert into a little rabbit hole and make a few comments about the new form of the office, the Novus Ordo of the office, called the Liturgia Orarum. It's not our focus in this series, but a few words are in order about this new form. After Vatican II, the Liturgia Concilium created a new order of the divine office and gave it a new name, Liturgia Orarum, or Liturgy of the Hours. However, people usually forget, or maybe they don't even know, that the name Divinum Officium was also retained in the official books. Look on the title page of any edition of the Liturgia Orarum and you'll see Liturgia Orarum or the Divine Office according to the Roman Rite. The Concilium wanted this new Liturgia Orarum name as a lead title to emphasize that each hour of the day is a gift from God so that the people he has called to be his own must worship him in spirit and truth in all times and places. Because we are first and foremost members of the chosen people, God our loving Father has called into his presence as his faithful assembly, bound together with him and with one another by covenant for the purpose of worshiping him. We'll talk a lot more about that. But both names should give us an important reminder that we're never alone in our worship. We're always bound together with the rest of the body of Christ in giving glory to the Father by the power of the Holy Ghost. The general instruction at the beginning of volume one of the Liturgia Orarum has a lot of good theology in it. Also has some things that are questionable, but that, that's another matter. But the good theology there, I think is worth mentioning. First, the, um, the sense of belonging, and it, it really comes out strongly there. 
This sense of belonging is very, very important to me personally, because even when I can't physically pray with others, which in my career, I was 80% travel, so I have prayed office probably more in obscure corners of some airport somewhere as much as any place else. But even there, I remain physically united to the entire communion of saints. There I'd be sitting in the corner of the airport, me and two or three uh, very Orthodox Jews with their uh, tefillin and talis. I know that every time I open the book and pray these words, I'm joined instantly to millions of people across the planet who are praying with me to praise our God and Father, all of us joining our voices to that of the heavenly choirs of the angels and saints. And in this union, we pray together and thus affirm our common dignity as children of a loving Father and as the incarnation in this world of Jesus Christ, now risen and gloriously reigning. By the power of the Holy Ghost, we can be formed into an instrument of God's saving power for one another. One can never pray the divine office alone. Briefly, we're going to talk in detail in part three, but the, the parts of the divine office begin in the evening with vespers at the lighting of the evening lamps. Then, before bedtime, we have Compline. At midnight or during the night, we have matins. Lauds follows matins or at dawn. Prime is the first hour of the day, just after, just after sunrise. Terse, the third hour of the day, or nine o'clock. Sext, the sixth hour of the day, or noon. And known, the ninth hour of the day, around 3 p.m. In part three, we'll talk about the structure and character of each hour and how that is expressed in the choice of psalms and texts. But broadly, the divine office is divided into a night office and a day office. The night office has the hours of matins and lauds and is so-called because it was originally sung at night and into the wee hours of the morning. That still happens in some communities and, as I get older, oftentimes by me because I suddenly wake for no unknown reason at two in the morning. And instead of complaining about it, in, uh, in recent years I've learned to take advantage of that and just stop and pray matins for the day. By the way, some recent sleep studies, which seem to be an obsession in our time, have determined that earlier humans actually slept in sessions, distinct sessions, and they woke for a while in the middle of the night as a normal practice. So this ancient pattern of rising for prayer in the night may well be linked to a natural human sleep cycle. And I'm sure some scientist will earn his PhD by giving us more information about that as time goes on. The day office includes Vespers, Compline, and then the next day, Prime, Terse, Sext, and Known. The original and still ideal times for these are Vespers at the end of the workday as daylight is fading and the moon is rising, because the rising of the moon has a lot to do with it, as we'll see in part two. Compline, before we retire for the night, Prime at 6 a.m. or daybreak, Terse, Sext, Known, 9 a.m. noon, and 3 p.m. respectively. Must we adhere to these ideal times, popularly known as the Veritas Orarum, or the truth of the hours? The liturgical movement of the 20th century debated this at great length. So respecting the truth of the hours of the office means using them just to sanctify a particular time of day, and they should be prayed just at that time and at no other. Now that's a very noble goal. However, even for monastics, it's a tall order. In actual practice, hours are determined differently according to the seasons, climate, and latitude and longitude, 
and all of the things that determine how many hours of sunlight a place had at different times of the year. So we see in the office we have shorter bits for summer when the, in the night office. We have shorter elements for summer when the night was shorter. And we have longer elements in winter when the night was longer. This desire to sanctify a day hour by hour was a major reason why the liturgical orarum was designed as it was. The general instruction says it this way, quote, the purpose of the liturgy of the hours, the divine office, is to sanctify the day in the whole range of human activity. To the different hours of the day, the liturgy of the hours extends the praise and thanksgiving, the memorial of the mysteries of salvation, the petitions and foretaste of heavenly glory that are present in the Eucharistic mystery, the center and high point in the whole life of the Christian community. By the way, there have been a number of bloggers recently who have uh, called attention to the fact that we still have a few remnants of this uh, Veritas Orarum in our popular speech. For example, uh, the hour of rest in Spain, this famous siesta that comes from sext, the Latin word for noon. And ter sexta known by there's simply the Latin words for the third, sixth, and ninth hour of the day. And the English word noon came from known, the Latin ninth hour. However, for those of us in an active life, the opportunity for veritas orarum is rarely realistic. So success in achieving this goal of the truth of the hours has been minimal, if at all. To today, not many would still call it an essential element of the office. You pray when you can. Now to come back to the community nature of the office as our public prayer. To understand the importance of the office, a proper understanding of the true nature of the church is essential. Unfortunately, a declining number of people have such an understanding. The Protestant notion of having Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior is a sadly mistaken and dangerously misleading one that now dominates the thinking even of Catholics. The fact is, salvation is corporate, from the Latin word corpus, flowing from the one body of Christ, crucified and risen, now present in us as the church. So we need each other for salvation. This fact has some very practical consequences. The concise definition in the Compendium of the Catholic Church, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, the word church refers to the people whom God calls and gathers together from every part of the earth. They form an assembly of those who, through faith and baptism, have become children of God, members of Christ, and temples of the Holy Ghost. The full catechism goes on to expand this and does a little bit of uh, wordplay for you. The word church from the Latin, and I'm quoting here, the, even my uh, Latin and Greek come from the quote of the catechism. The word church in Latin, ecclesia, and from the Greek, ekkalein, means literally to call out of, means a convocation or an assembly. Interrupt that. The definition in the Baltimore Catechism number three, by the way, uses a more traditional word that we're going to use a lot this evening, congregation. And that comes from the Latin Greeks to call your flock together. Back to the catechism. It designates the assemblies of the people, usually for a religious purpose. Ecclesia is frequently used in the Greek Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, for the assembly of the chosen people before God. Above all, for their assembly on Mount Sinai, where Israel received the law and was established by God as his holy people. By calling itself church, 
the first community of Christian believers recognized itself as the legitimate heir to that assembly. In the church, God is calling together his people from all the ends of the earth. The equivalent Greek term, Kyriake, from which the English word church and the German Kirche are derived, means what belongs to the Lord. In Christian usage, the word church designates the liturgical assembly, but also the local community or the whole universal community of believers. These three meanings are inseparable. The church, then, is the people that God gathers in the whole world. She exists in local communities and is made real as a liturgical assembly. She draws her life from the word and the body of Christ, and so herself becomes Christ's body, end quote. So the church then by definition is a community or assembly or congregation called out by God to give him formal common worship, called out of the world. In the Old Testament, we find the Hebrew term kahal, which as we just read, the Septuagint translated as ecclesia, which in Latin then became ecclesia, literally called out. Read Psalm 49 if you want a great meditation on this. The origins of this call begin with God's calling Moses to gather the Hebrew people and lead them out of Egypt into the desert. If you remember your Exodus, why did Moses tell Pharaoh that the people needed to leave their work and go out into the desert? Why did they need freedom from slavery? Why did they need to be released from their bonds and burdens? Exodus says very clearly, the reason was to go and offer sacrifice. They did eventually leave and come out into the desert, and in the midst of their wanderings, God told them in great detail how to construct a fitting dwelling place for him in the tent of the tabernacle, and how sacrifice was to be offered. In that tabernacle, that tent, was to be what later generations would term the Shekinah, the presence of God among his people. Both Jewish temples would be modeled on this same plan. And eventually, this type comes to its fulfillment in Christ, the true temple, the true presence of God among his chosen people. St. John tells us in the prologue to his gospel, and the word became flesh and pitched his tent, literally in the Greek, among us. We hear this at the end of almost every Holy Mass, and we pray it each day in the Angelus. He pitched his tent. You're going to find that again and again and again in the Psalms, this notion of the tent, the dwelling place. And every time you see it, we're alluding to the presence of God, the Shekinah. So the New Testament goes on at great lengths to explain that we are the worshiping Gaal now. A uh, well-known hymn at Matins puts it very succinctly, nos veris Israel sumus, as the, the text says. We are the true Israel now. We are the people called by God to be his congregation, his flock together, to render to him fitting common worship that is his due. Pope St. Leo the Great says this very powerfully in his famous Christian, uh, Christmas sermon, which uh, the Latin is just so magnificent. Pope Leo the Great is the greatest Latinist of all the fathers. His Latin is just superb. But he has this lovely quote that we read uh, every Christmas in the Divine Office at Matins. Recognize, O Christian, your dignity. You have been made a sharer in the divine nature. So don't go back 
into the vile degradation of your former life. Remember of whose head and of whose body you are a member. Remember that you were snatched out from the power of darkness and carried in to the light and the reign of God. Through the sacrament of baptism, you have become a temple of the Holy Ghost. So don't go back to your old ways and become a dwelling place for the devil. Don't return to his service because your price was the blood of Christ. Vatican II had a lot to say on this in Sacrosanctum Concilium, the famous document on the liturgy. Just a few quotes. The divine office, like other liturgical service, is not a private matter, but belongs to the whole body of the church, whose life it both expresses and affects. All who pray the divine office, whether in choir or in common, should fulfill the task entrusted to them as perfectly as possible. This refers not only to the internal devotion of their minds, but also to their external manner of celebration. It is moreover fitting that the office, both in choir and in common, be sung when possible. We'll come back to that. Pastors of souls, I'm continuing a quote. This is a, a very, very important quote. Again, echoing the councils of Baltimore, echoing the council of Trent, and so forth. Pastors of souls, and this is Vatican II, should see to it that the chief hours, especially Vespers, are celebrated in common in church on Sundays and on the more solemn feasts. And the laity, too, are encouraged to recite the divine office, either with the priests or among themselves or even individually. Now, I have to make a little distinction here. It's an important one that gets lost in translation too often. Everyone who prays the divine office shares in the public liturgical prayer of the church. However, the sacrament of holy orders bestows a unique sacramental character on the priest at his ordination, empowering him to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. So there remains a quantitative and qualitative difference between the divine office prayed by a priest and by the laity. As with the Mass and the reception of Holy Eucharist as well, this has unfortunately become misunderstood very often. It's not the time or place to go into all the details, but it, it just bears a clarification to remember. And just, for example, that's one of the things, when we pray the office and Monsignor is not here, we don't have a priest present, we don't incense the altar, we, don't, uh, we pray the Magnificat in a little different way, but when we have a priest present, we stop and we incense the offer. We offer the, the incense as part of our evening offering. Because to emphasize the more sacrificial nature when we're joined to the ministry of the sacred priesthood than just when we're not. The big difference between the priesthood of the laity and the, and the ordained priesthood never should be underestimated. As in the Mass, when we pray the office and we blend our voices with those of the saints and angels in this one unending hymn of praise, the Sacrificium Laudus, the sacrifice of praise, the whole body of Christ, head and members, are joined in the unity of common prayer. Pope Benedict XVI said in a 2007 allocution that we form a Societas Laudis, a phrase that's dear to me because I'm a member of a group called the Societas Laudis, and we take a private vow each year, it's renewed every December, that we vow to pray the office every day and we vow to sing at least one hour each day. So the, the Societas Laudis, following St. Thomas Aquinas, Pope Benedict reminds us that 
Our baptism is more than a bath, more than a purification. It is incorporation into a community, the Corpus Christi. This is another problem that's come up with. People have this notion that baptism somehow is this magical thing that does away with original sin. No, it does do away with original sin, but why? Just like when Moses says, go into the desert, why? So that we become part of a worshiping community. As St. Thomas says, baptism, two equal effects, remove original sin and gives you the ability to receive the other sacraments. Should not be, should not be underestimated. Quoting again from the general instruction, when the church offers praise to God in the divine office, it unites itself with that one continuous hymn of praise sung throughout the ages in the halls of heaven. It also receives a foretaste of the song of praise in heaven. That song sung continually before the throne of God and of the Lamb, described by St. John in the Apocalypse. Our close union with the church in heaven is given effective voice when we all, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, redeemed by Christ's blood, and gathered into the one church, glorify the triune God with one hymn of praise." End quote. Now, if that sounds a little flowery and a bit much, wait, there's more, as the advert says on TV. Dom Garanger commented about the prayers at the foot of the altar, quote, but see, Christians, the sacrifice begins. The priest is at the foot of the altar. God is attentive. The angels are here in adoration. The whole church is united with the priest, whose priesthood and action are those of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Let us make the sign of the cross with him and begin." St. John Henry Newman goes even further than Dom Garaget did. Quote, it's not a mere form of words. It is a great action the greatest action that can be on the earth. It is not merely an invocation, but if I dare use the word, the evocation of the eternal, end quote. We hold this same conviction about the office. Hildemar of Corby, commenting on chapter 19 on the discipline of psalmody and the rule of St. Benedict, quote, now we must see why St. Benedict says, especially when we are present at the work of God, when the whole of God is everywhere. There is not more of him in one place than another. Rather, as I said in an earlier quotation from St. Gregory the Great, the whole of him is everywhere. But when he says, especially when we are present at the work of God, that is the divine office, this especially can refer not to God, but to us. For it is especially during the time of prayer that we see that we are seen by God. It is for this reason that the Lord has given us the Lord has given us the words with which to pray. And the words themselves are short, so that when we are present to make prayer to God by paying attention to the power of the words, our mind may be made tranquil and serene unto the full enjoyment of that invisible light as far as human nature allows. This is because we're not able to see God all the time because of our various earthly preoccupations. Our mind is divided and our eye is not simple as is needed for seeing God. End quote. These qualities of unity and universality are among the most outstanding gifts that the, altar give, that the office gives to those who celebrate it. So it bears repeating, one can never pray the office alone because, quote, the liturgy of the hours, like other liturgical services, is not a private matter but belongs to the whole body of the church whose life it both expresses and affects, end quote. Although it's more evident and obvious in public celebrations, particularly those of greater solemnity when we have the privilege of sharing it in church, even in so-called private recitation, 
the whole communion of saints and the whole company of the angels are present. When we pray those words, designated for the church's prayer, under the guidance of the Holy Ghost, the whole Christ, to use St. Augustine's famous term, is with us, and each of us is working on behalf of one another. Quote from the instruction again. The example and precept of our Lord and the apostles in regard to constant and persevering prayer are not to be seen as a purely legal reg regulation. They belong to the very essence of the church herself, which is a community, and which, in prayer, must express its nature as a community. Groups gathering for prayer, apostolic work, or other reason are encouraged to fulfill the church's duty by celebrating an hour of the divine office. They should bear in mind that through public worship and prayer they reach all humanity and can contribute significantly to the salvation of the whole world. And that last sentence, end quote, sorry. That last sentence tells us why the divine office is an essential element of the daily cursus of the church's worship. The primary purpose of a church building and the community that gather inside it is to proclaim the gospel, the good news of salvation, through the worthy celebration of the sacred liturgy, holy mass, and the divine office. The strength and support of our common prayer keeps us clearly focused on that mission, and it also inspires us to the many works of mercy and service that extend our apostolic outreach to the world. You'll see this clearly pointed out in the text that accompanies the, the diagram. Works of mercy and apostolic outreach that do not flow from the sacred liturgy are simply functions of an NGO or other social group. They're not Catholic action. The heart of the office is the Psalms. And we touch briefly on the Catholic and Orthodox versus the Jew, Jewish versus the Protestant, and they're all slightly different understanding of Scripture. Well, the Protestant's totally different. This reality has some particular practical ramifications in our praying of the Psalms that be confusing sometimes to people new to the uh, Psalter. The most obvious one that people notice right off the bat, the numbering. When we use the traditional numbering of the Psalms from the Septuagint, rather than the numbering that has become common in the, in the modern versions of Scripture that follow the Hebrew text, the so-called Masoretic text. The Septuagint is actually an older text. We won't get into that debate right now. But we sing in our office the Vulgate Psalter of St. Jerome, his so-called Gallican Psalter, third Psalter, which follows the Septuagint numbering. So the numbering will vary uh, we will go into the details of it, but just be aware of that. In the middle of the Psalter, uh, from, so I think it's Psalm, if memory serves, from Psalm 10 through Psalm 146, uh, the numbers may vary. One, a portion of the divine office in all the strands of Christian tradition consists of praying the Psalms in a more or less fixed order. So it's not surprising that many volumes, some excellent, some less so, have been written on the use of the Psalms in the divine office why and how Christians pray them, and what the origins of their usage might be. Early Christians followed a pattern of usage they knew from the liturgy of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and to a lesser extent, patterns in the synagogue. Actually, the synagogue liturgy was drawn from the second temple liturgy as well. The temple that Jesus and the first Christians knew was the second temple, built in 536 to 516 BC after the return of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity, and much expanded by Herod the Great. But the users of this temple also held an idealized memory of the first temple built by Solomon, later destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. 
Christians recognized very early on that Jesus is the great high priest, and Christians are a priestly people and have been made a kingdom and priest to our God by baptism, as we just heard the quote from St. Peter earlier. It's no surprise then that they found in the priestly liturgy of the temple models for their own worship. The times of the daily morning and evening sacrifice were pivotal moments in the temple liturgy. Devout Jews who could not be present in the temple at those times still marked them with prayer. As a prayerful Jew, Jesus also went up to the temple to pray when he was in Jerusalem, as well as spending time in prayer alone. He most likely prayed daily the morning psalms and the evening psalms. The Gospels tell us that he and the disciples sang the Hallel psalms as they left the upper room after his last supper and walked across Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. They probably prayed the Psalms of Ascent each time they walked up toward the temple. So the Psalms and their place in temple liturgy influenced Jesus' understanding of himself and his unique role as the fulfillment of the waiting for the coming of the kingdom of God to the Jewish people, and indeed, to all nations and peoples. The apostles also regularly went up to the temple in Jerusalem to pray, and so they knew its ritual and its music very well. Although not all the psalms were composed explicitly for public worship, the biblical collection of psalms as we have it now was essentially the hymn book of the second temple. All of the psalms are replete with references to temple worship. You can't find one without it. Psalms were sung in the temple, often with instrumental accompaniment, according to a fixed order that varied by the days of the week. Sunday was Psalm 23, Monday 47, Tuesday 81, Wednesday 93, Thursday 80, Friday 92, and Saturday 91. Some psalms were assigned to the liturgy of specific feasts, others to special occasions outside the temple. Following the example of Jesus and the apostles, Christians have, from the beginning, put the psalms in a privileged place at the heart of our prayer, making it our prayer book par excellence. This should not be surprising, as these texts were linked to the temple sacrifice, which prefigured the one unique sacrifice of the cross. Their enduring relevance is clear as one prays them. The placement and distribution of psalms in our public prayer has always varied widely in different times and places. In the fourth century, the nun Egeria went on a liturgical pilgrimage from her native Spain, and she kept a diary and that gives us many snapshots of liturgical practices in the places she visited. During her stay in Jerusalem, she was very surprised to find that the psalms and antiphons they use are always appropriate, whether at night, in the early morning, at the day prayers at midday, ninth hour, at the Lucinarium, the lamplighting service that began evening prayer. Everything is suitable, appropriate, and relevant to what is being done, end quote. So obviously, she was used to a different ordering of psalms, perhaps in a strictly continuous sequence, as did the early fathers of the church, who used to pray all 150 every single day from memory. So most early monks, uh, pardon me, most early monks particularly did recite that, and a monk, a new monk, a novice monk, would spend the first year memorizing the Psalter. That's all they would do. Their whole focus was to make sure they could sing from memory. Uh, as <laughs> One of my many chant masters in, in my various uh, chant studies through the years used to say, if you can't sing it from memory, you're not chanting. If you need a book, you're not chanting. 
a great quote. I wish I could do that as effectively. I do have a lot of the repertory memorized, but uh, unfortunately, I think the Requiem is about the only thing I can get through from soup to nuts without ever picking up a book. Um, but that's, that's always the goal, is to sing from memory. As monastic life became more organized and the singing of the daily office more elaborate, psalms were spread out over longer periods of time in order to have time in the day for other tasks. In the West, the one-week distribution set out in the 6th century by St. Benedict in his rule became more or less the standard. Modified often to adapt to changing circumstances and situations, today one can find two-week, three-week, and even four-week cycles, as well as the traditional one-week. The Liturgia Orarum, for example, uses a four-week cycle. We'll talk more about different Psalter arrangements in part three. But whatever their pattern of praying the Psalms, Christians have, from the earliest apostolic preaching, developed a Christocentric view of the Psalms, seeing in them prophecies or images which find their full meaning in the life of Christ and in the life of his body, the Church. In the New Testament, we find many assertions of this. And in the Gospel of St. Luke, we read that our Divine Lord himself affirmed this. In particular, the New Testament and the Fathers of the Church found in the Psalms prophetic validations of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection, and saw the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist and the sacrifice of the Mass, foreshadowed in them. Some newer editions of the Divine Office now include a quote from the New Testament or the Fathers of the Church at the start of each psalm to provide a Christological slant for that psalm or as an invitation to pray in a Christian way, as the instruction puts it. Since late antiquity, Christians have attached short introductory verses known as antiphons to the psalms being sung to give them an orientation to some aspect of Christian life or to the day's liturgical celebration. Some people find the psalms can be difficult to really pray as one's own prayer, especially when first encountering them. Psalms come in a variety of styles and run the full gamut of human emotions. Some are exhilarating in their excitement and joy. Others are deeply depressing in their despair. Still others are filled with rage and frustration, asking God to do some pretty awful things to our enemies. Even after 50 years of singing Psalm 136, smashing the heads of Babylonian babies against the rock still sometimes gives me pause. But the Psalms are a type of Hebrew poetry, and they're a product of the ancient Semitic culture from which they emerged over several centuries. As with all poetry, the beauty is that the language allows for many levels of meaning. It's possible to find new meanings each and every time we pray them. And the antiphons and other prayers that frame them afford us varying perspectives to continuously pray them in a new dimension. St. Augustine remarks in his famous commentary on Psalm 149, Cantati Domino Canticum Novum, sing to the Lord a new song. Christians always sing a new song, not because the song has changed, but the singers have changed, or should have, grown in grace and maturity since the last time we sang it. Our song is new because we are new. The psalmists often borrowed images from the poetry of other parts of their culture, the ancient New East. So we see warlike images of God taken directly from the poems of other ancient deities, including curses and other strong language, as we mentioned earlier. We might not express our own rage and frustration with such graphic detail today, but all the emotions in the psalms are real. They're emotions we humans actually have, and we feel them no less deeply now. 
Concerned that some of these harsh verses might be too difficult for modern sensibilities, Pope Paul VI approved carving them out of the liturgical orarum. However, I think there is great wisdom in the church mandating praying all of them over the centuries. And the great saints and doctors of the church have found deep personal meaning in these so-called cursing or imprecatory psalms and verses. Praying the psalms over many years, one comes to appreciate ever more fully the ebb and flow of human life that they express so well and so honestly. Quote, though the psalms originated very many centuries ago in the East, they express accurately the pain and hope, the unhappiness and trust of people of every age and country. The Holy Spirit inspired their composition and inspired the church to adopt them with great wisdom and is always present by his grace to those believers who use them with goodwill, end quote. This emotional honesty allows the Psalms to be prayed in an intensely personal way, and their poetic structure provides a framework and a stimulus for meditation on the important mysteries of human life. Who am I? Who is God? Who is my neighbor? What is God's will for me? Their rhythm is a constant call to ever deeper penetration of the ultimate mystery of God's infinite love for each human person. We are called to worship together in order to give God praise for his own goodness and also to recognize his glory in ourselves and in other people. As St. Irenaeus put it, the glory of God is a human person fully alive. Gloria Dei vivens homo, that famous quote. The Psalms echo that glory repeatedly. Above all else, though, whatever their mood, style, or content, the Psalms remain first and foremost songs of praise to God. They're meant to be sung and to be sung by the congregation called together to give God his due praise in his temple. So they're always most appropriate for our liturgical prayer, that public prayer of the whole Christ, head and members. Those who pray the Psalms, quote, in the divine office do so not so much in their own name as in the name of the entire body of Christ, end quote. In doing this, we're blessed with a deeper presence of Christ in our midst, as the Vatican Council reminded us, quote, he is present lastly when the church prays and sings, for he promised where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them, end quote. So why do we sing the office? From the very early days, the church has recognized that sacred music is appropriate for celebrations of the hours of the divine office in which the psalms have a prominent place. So the psalms, like our more recent hymns, were composed to be sung, and many to become, actually most, to be sung as a part of temple worship. The headings to many psalms even specify instruments to accompany them. This bond between sacred text and sacred song, especially in the context of public worship in temple and synagogue, was familiar to early Christians from their experiences in Judaism. Over time, they added other musical compositions to the office, such as hymns, antiphons, and responsories to enhance the singing of the psalms and other sacred texts. Pope Paul VI noted this special relationship of sacred music and the office in the opening words of the apostolic constitution that formally promulgated the post-conciliar office. He begins calling it laudus canticum, the song of praise, and the general instruction pursues this idea. The Psalms are not readings or prose prayers, though on occasion they can be used that way. Rather, from their literary genre, they are properly called tehillim, songs of praise in Hebrew, and psalmoi, songs to be sung to the lyre in Greek. 
They are composed in Hebrew poetic parallelism. I'll explain that in just a moment. The sung celebration of the divine office is more in keeping with the nature of this prayer and a mark of both higher solemnity and closer union of hearts in offering praise to God. So in celebrating the liturgy, singing is not to be regarded as an embellishment superimposed on prayer. Rather, it wells up from the depths of a soul intent on prayer and the praise of God and reveals in a full and complete way the community nature of Christian worship. But it is no easy task to sing the entire office, nor is, it, pardon me, nor is the church's praise to be considered, either by origin or by nature, the exclusive possession of clerics and monks, but the property of the whole Christian community. Clearly, the Psalms are closely bound up with music as both Jewish and Christian tradition confirm. In fact, a complete understanding of many of the Psalms is greatly assisted by singing them, or at least not losing sight of their poetic and musical character. Accordingly, whenever possible, singing the Psalms must have preference, at least for the major days and hours in view of the character of the Psalms themselves. Just a word about Hebrew parallelism. Poetry in English usually has to do with either rhyme or accent, uh, although modern poetry not so much maybe, but the notion of parallelism is not as common in, in English poetry. In Hebrew poetry and in most of the ancient Near East, an idea is stated and then the idea is echoed in the first half of a verse, and then in the second half the idea is repeated, a question is asked and answered, or a complementary phrase is said in a different way, there are various ways, but the first half of the verse and the second are in parallel in one of about a half a dozen ways. Something we can talk about if you're interested at some later time. Like the Mass, a fully sung celebration then is the ideal. However, realistically, the document goes on to spell out options for a mixture of singing and reciting parts of various hours when a fully sung celebration is not possible. And this was a big change because before the Council, the options for the office in public were either fully sung or fully recited. Over the previous few centuries, the number of parishes celebrating sung vespers on Sundays and feast days had dwindled, and the breviary had become the priest prayer book in the mind of most Catholics, if they knew about it at all. More often than not, the hours were simply read privately by priests and religious obligated to pray the office. The Council Fathers wanted to change that, and also to strengthen the praying of the office among the clergy by making it more public. Unfortunately, most of, like most of what came out of the council, we all know that the end result was actually the opposite of what was desired. In any event, the general instruction went on to say, with this increased range of variation, quote, it's possible for the public praise of the church to be sung more frequently than formerly and to be adapted in a variety of ways to different circumstances. Again, singing is fundamental to the office and should be used as much as possible. Of course, the general instruction was just echoing here a key message of Vatican II. Quote, the declarations of Vatican Council II on liturgical singing apply to all liturgical services, but in a special way to the divine office. The Council had stressed, quote again, sacred song which belongs to the words forms a necessary and integral part of the solemn liturgy. There are a number of reasons for this. First and foremost is that additional solemnity and beauty are added to our worship, and they are a reflection of the beauty of being, of which God, the object of our praise, is the ultimate source. But there are also reasons more immediately satisfying to us when we participate in sacred music. Interestingly, modern psychology and medicine 
have offered alternative explanations for what we call mystical phenomena because they are eager to obviate or at least mitigate any need for divine or supernatural activity in human life in order to understand it fully. In most called scientific circles, any recognition of such activity violates the integrity of one's understanding. However, recent years, very recent years, there has begun to be serious movement from the obligatory atheistic or agnostic viewpoint toward a range of viewpoints that lie somewhere between begrudgingly deistic and outright theistic. And in some circles, even Christian viewpoints and, dare I say it, Catholic viewpoints are taken seriously. We see, for example, medical studies on the effects of prayer in healing. One of the leading exponents of scientific atheism publishing a retraction of his atheism. Even the AMA and other American medical groups starting to take seriously the value of alternative approaches to medicine and therapy, including the use of music for healing. Said in the language of liturgical prayer, the unity of mind and body and you'll hear that constantly in liturgical prayer, mean that the physical effect or affect of bodily movement and posture during prayer really matters. The use of the voice really matters. Music is by its very nature a powerful force to move minds and hearts. So whether by singing or active listening, sacred music enhances the ability of the words to penetrate and resonate within us. It's an active aid to meditation and contemplation of the eternal mystery of God's redeeming love for us. The importance of singing the hours is tied to the nature of the human person as body and spirit. This unity of mens et corpus, as the Roman colleagues say again and again, lies at the heart of the Judeo-Christian and hence Catholic tradition. Singing enhances the inner rhythm of the office that allows us to see more clearly the true nature of our humanity as part of the eternal reality of God's enduring love and creation. The physical act of breathing and the output of breath required to sing it, even for those of us who don't have stomach muscles anymore and have pieces of mesh that don't do very well with that, but the physical act of doing this is an expression of the breath, the spiritus of the Holy Ghost, acting through us to sanctify the world. We freely accept the demands on our bodies that singing makes as an expression of the offering of our bodies to God in union with the free offering of His divine Son on the cross. This is a very concrete expression in our own lives of the office as an extension of the Mass throughout time. We serve as the holy priesthood that offers the spiritual sacrifices which Jesus Christ has made acceptable to God. Again and again we say one can never celebrate the office alone. When we celebrate the office, you're reunited with the angels and the entire communion of saints. Our voices blend with theirs in the eternal song of praise, unending to God. And again, St. Peter's quote, chosen race, royal priesthood, a people set apart. This in turn echoes the words of post Pope Urban VIII. Urban VIII wasn't all bad, you see in spite of making a mistake about the hymns. But anyway, he did have some good things to say. In his brief sequitus that can be found in the front of the uh, Roman Missal, if there's anything divine among man's possessions which might excite the envy of the citizens of heaven, that is, could they be swayed by such a passion, this is undoubtedly the most holy sacrifice of the Mass, by, we, by means of which men, having before their eyes and taking into their hands the very creator of heaven and earth, experience, while still on earth, a certain anticipation of heaven. 
How keenly, then, must mortals strive to preserve and protect this inestimable privilege with all due worship and reverence, and be ever on their guard, lest their negligence offend the angels who vie with them in eager adoration. And he goes on then to speak about the intimate union of the Mass and the Divine Office, quote, it is highly becoming that the wings, as it were, of the liturgy, which the priest, like the cherubim of the old mystical tabernacle, daily spreads over the true mercy seat of the world, should be twofold. And here he's comparing the Mass and the Office as the two wings of the cherubim that stood above the Ark of the Covenant, and they embraced, they folded over in an embrace over the mercy seat, which was considered the exact spot of the divine Shekinah, the divine presence in the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. Sacred music, then, is one of the principal ways to express and actually reinforce our belonging to a community, both the congregation with whom we sing and the universal church. Faith is a gift from God that we receive when we hear the word proclaimed by someone, and that faith is reinforced by our relationships with others in the church as well as being sustained by our own prayer. Singing the words of our faith together creates a stronger bond of unity and joy in being members of the body of Christ. Singing the actual text of the liturgy joins our voices to those of the universal church joined to Christ our head under the guidance of the Holy Ghost. Finally, authentic music is also an expression of our participation in the cosmic order of the universe. Philosophers and mathematicians have long noted that the physical and mathematical properties of music reflect the dimensions of the cosmos. The artist David Clayton, writing in the blog New Liturgical Movement, posted recently about the importance of the number eight in sacred liturgy and art. He goes in to talk about the, <clears throat> the uh, octotonos and the, the Gregorian modes, while they're different, both reflect the perfection of the number eight and the musical patterns, these repeated melodic patterns, fundamental harmonies and intervals in sacred music are described numerically, but they're the basis of beauty in instrumental music and are also at the heart of the pattern of beauty and proportion in the cosmos and in mankind, called by the ancients cosmic music or human music. And take note here, the reality of this numerical foundation puts paid to the notion that beauty is purely subjective. Aristotle and St. Thomas after him remind us of a basic tenet of philosophy that being has four characteristics, unity, truth, goodness, and beauty, and all must be there. In the Eastern Church, there's a rolling eight-week cycle throughout the year by which psalms and prayers are sung in the designated tone of the week. And this practice, some Roman Catholics follow that. In Roman Catholicism, though, we usually follow one of the eight modes of Gregorian chant. Because chant is a practice that transforms the heart very deeply and so forms us in beauty profoundly. For when we sing our prayers, we engage our body, soul, and spirit. St. Augustine has the famous line, we cantat bis orat, who sings, prays twice. But this is only true if the melody is appropriate to the prayer. The musical keys of contemporary music are limited in scope for our purposes, generally employing only two modes, major and minor, and so will not stimulate the same powerful response in us. So to say beautiful music that is composed in harmony, and not only with itself, but with the sacred text it accompanies, can lead us to a deeper understanding of that text. As with beautiful art, its beauty opens our hearts to ineffable truths that are beyond words. So sacred music goes beyond to the ultimate source of beauty. Singing the words allows us to connect more deeply with the reality of the person of Christ as the Logos, 
the eternal and true word, begotten by the Father from all eternity. Pope Benedict, again, drew attention to this in a sermon at a mass to celebrate his brother's retirement as choir master of Regensburg Cathedral. He titled the sermon, Conere Cum Angelis, a reference to Psalm 137, in conspectu angelorum psalam tibi, in the presence of the angels I will sing to thee. He was taking his theme from the 19th chapter of the Will of St. Benedict, the same as we heard from an earlier uh, quote this evening, which talks about the discipline of psalm singing. Benedict comments, let us consider, we heard this quote earlier, but Benedict is going to really develop it further. Let us consider how we ought to behave in the presence of God and his angels. And so sing the Psalms, ut mens nostra concordat voce nostri, so that our mind may be in harmony with our voice. Pope Benedict's sermon then develops that theme beautifully. He goes on, it is therefore not at all the case that man contrives something and sings it, but rather the song comes to him from the angelic choirs. And he must raise his heart on high so that it can harmonize with the tone which comes to him. In the earthly liturgy, we take part in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy, which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims. Why we're in this building. With all the warriors of the heavenly army, we sing a hymn of glory to the Lord. The sacred liturgy is then not something which monks or bishops manufacture or produce. It exists before they were there. It is entering into a heavenly liturgy which was already taking place. Only in and through this fact is earthly liturgy a liturgy at all, in that it betakes itself into that greater and grander liturgy which is already being celebrated. And as a matter of fact, one cannot speak about worship at all without also speaking of the music of worship. It's no accident that the Catechism, we find the word to sing for the first time in the section which deals with the cosmic nature of liturgy. In a quotation, from the liturgy of Vatican II, quote, in the earthly liturgy, we take part in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy, which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims. With all the warriors of the heavenly army, we sing him glory to the Lord, end quote. We just had those texts for the Feast of All Saints and today on the Feast of the Dedication of the Lateran Basilica. In these few sentences, we find set forth the fundamental principles of liturgical music. Faith comes from hearing God's word. Whenever God's word is translated into human words, there remains something unspoken, unutterable. It calls us to silence, into a stillness, which ultimately allows the unutterable to become song, and even calls upon the voices of the cosmos to assist in making audible what had remained unspoken. For this reason, church music originating in the word and the silence heard in that word presupposes a constantly renewed listening to the rich plenitude of the Logos. Finally, two quotes to end, and then we'll take a few minutes for questions if there are any. Why does the office matter so much today? This is a quote I've stolen from a blogger known as the modern medievalist. Quote, the office is the most powerful prayer of the church after the Holy Mass. Higher than benediction, even though the priest makes the sign of the cross with the two presence of Jesus himself. The office is even more powerful than the Holy Rosary, with all its promises and indulgences. In the Middle Ages, especially, the office of the dead was always prayed before a Requiem Mass as the most effective remedy to release a soul from the fires of purgation. I refer to the words of St. Alphonsus Maria de Liguori in his meditations on the divine office. Many private prayers do not equal in value only one prayer of the divine office, 
as being offered to God in the name of the whole church and in his own appointed words. St. Mary Magdalene Pazzi says that in comparison with the divine office, all other prayers and devotions are but of little merit and efficacy with God. Let us be convinced then that after the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the church possesses no source, no treasure, so abundant as the office from which we may draw such daily streams of grace. And then I'll leave you with a quote from Justice Clarence Thomas. There's a great video about Justice Thomas, and in it, about 26 minutes in, he recalls his time at Conception Seminary College, and he says, I loved the contemplative life. I loved lauds, which was morning prayers, vespers, evening prayers. I loved praying it to Gregorian chant. I hope you will find that same love, and I look forward to praying it with you. Questions? Anybody want to ask a question? Yes, no? Yes. <laughs> That'll be, that's actually, we're going to talk about that in detail at part three. But we're going to go through the books and talk about them. I, uh, I have some samples up here if you want to look through some tonight. The ribbons mark uh, the places in the office when we get down to detailing about the structure. We're going to walk through how to do that, how to set them up. There's no specific place. They're just to mark all the bits you're going to need for the office that you're about to pray. So, for example, depends on what book you're using. Uh, this book doesn't have ribbons. They were, this is my old 42. I started out praying the office from this 1942 edition, and uh, I'm back to it now. Oh, sorry. I got away from that. Mea culpa. Yes. The only difference, Regina, will be in the calendar. So some days, some days, sorry. Oh, the office that we're going to pray here in the oratory on Sundays, what differences will there be since we follow a, a pre-55 calendar? And the answer to that is that in Vespers, we will have more commemorations. And once in a while, a feast is more likely to trump a Sunday than in 62. But that otherwise, it's everything's the same. There's no other change. Just a small, and that won't happen that often. Most of the time, this uh, lovely book from Angela's Press doesn't have all the, uh, the other commemorations in it, but this, Angela's Press has a beautiful edition of the office. Uh, it's not cheap, but it's, it's really well done. Yes. You'd start in, I'm, I'm assuming most people start in English. I happen to be fluent, oh, pardon me. If the, uh, I'll get it, maybe. His question is, if I start praying the divine office, do I start praying in English or do I have to go to Latin? No, start, start in English. Um, I happen to be fluent in Latin, but uh, have been for a long time. But the, uh, the best way to start is just to pray it in English. You can get it online. And we, again, we'll talk about some better sources. You can use simplified versions of the office. For example, this one. Or uh, this one from Angelus Press, which is also very good. Um, and there are uh, online editions, divinumofficium.com. And you can choose what version of the office you wish to pray, 62, 55. And it'll be Latin on one side and English on the other. And you can get it on your phone in an app called Brevmeum, which takes the Divinum Officium 
takes the Divinium Officium and gives it to you. Now, I don't have the English on mine, but you can set it up on your phone to where you get an English on the other column. And there are other apps too. Ipieta, uh, uh, I guess I should say Ipieta, um, has the 62 office on it. But the, the older office, in fact, on Divinum Officium, you can even go back and pray the, uh, the Tridentine office. You can go all the way back. And you can also pray the monastic office on there. Many people, because of their affiliation with a particular Benedictine monastery or other monastery, pray an office in the monastic form, which has uh, some, some differences. But start, choose an hour. And again, we'll dwell down on this more in part three, but choose an hour and uh, don't, don't try to bite it all off at once. Choose an hour and get started. Many people start with Vespers, other people like to start with Prime, because Prime has fewer changes than the other hours. Or Compline. Compline is more or less the same almost every evening except for the Psalms. And tonight we're praying Sunday because it's a feast day. But you'll pray, you'll get very familiar with a few Psalms in at Compline. Uh, 490 and, uh, what, what are the, Ecce Benedicite, I forget the number. But take a piece, try it, yes. Sure. I sense for some of you the same degree of anxiety we had when we began looking at the missile. So let me say two things. The first is a practical, second is a more maybe intellectual. Practically speaking, you learn by doing. So simply come and do it, which Stan has already repeated. Pick an hour, pick a format, stick with it, and kind of go from there. The second one is a little bit larger and probably deserves a little bit more time, but put aside the hyper-rationalism of Protestantism. Because the problem with the hyper-rationalism of Protestantism is it has convinced us that we need to know everything, understand everything, before we can do anything. Okay, so you're already behind the eight ball because you don't know Latin. The only person who knows Latin in this room is the person <laughs> on my left, all right? So if we're concerned about having to know and understand everything perfectly before we do anything, we will never do anything. And remember, before the printing press, all that we heard tonight was already being done. And so people didn't know anything at all. And we're still able to do all of what we're talking about. If I seem a little bit more anxious, it's because we're going to lose sight of the great good that's going on because we're going to spend all of our time in the weeds. Just start and go and do. Since it's God's work, first and last, He will do all of the heavy lifting for you. And yes, we really, we really, really will spend more time on the, some how-tos when we get to part three. But there's a reason why I put that off to part three, because if we get bogged down in that at the beginning, we forget why we're doing it and what we're doing. The what and the why have to be understood. Then we'll get to the how. Okay. Questions? Somebody had it. Yes. Sure. The... the site is divinumofficium.com and the app is brevmeum. It's available on the iPhone, brevmeum, and I think it's available on other formats, right? Yes. 
all of the resources that, that Stan has spoken about this evening, we are going to type up and have those available next week and then also put them on the website as well. Actually, I'm not going to do it. Donna's going to do it. <laughs> yes, I have many links, and I'm sure we'll get some online, some questions. My email should have, I mean, my email is always full, but it'll have a few questions. If anything specific you want to make sure it gets included, like the links to the videos I've made reference to, the BBC video and the uh, Clarence Thomas videos, I've got links to all of those that you can click on and watch if it so moves you. Uh, and I can furnish all of those details. I've got lots of notes in here that I just don't have time to uh, uh, dwell into at the moment. But the important thing is, is tonight I wanted to set the stage to talk about the theology behind this graphic. And we're going to come back to this graphic again next week, and even more so in part three. But again, we have to get there in steps, otherwise you won't have the building blocks to implement part three. Other questions? Brev Mayhem, that's the easiest one. Download Brev Mayhem on your phone. I even have to use Brev Mayhem a lot because uh, sometimes I don't carry uh, the old books with me, so I'm missing the lessons at Matins. Yes? As far as I'm going to. I'm just about to do that. I remembered for once. As far as the history, are there good sources to go and read about the history? Not really. I can give you a couple of, of good titles that will give you some history and background, but no one has ever done uh, a really good comprehensive history of the office. It's a vast undertaking. So we have some very broad surveys. There are two or three standard works that give you a broad survey. The Wikipedia article is pretty good. There are a lot of good resources in Wikipedia. Most of them are just cloned from the old Catholic encyclopedia, which is superb, by the way, for historical matters. Uh, the, the, you have some of the greatest writers of the 19th century and early 20th centuries in there. Herbert Thurston, I mean, just, come on, you've got the greats there. So. I would recommend those two as sources to read for a good broad overview, but um, I mean I've spent many, many years, I work on two or three academic groups where we study medieval manuscripts of the office and we dissect them, and the more you get into medieval manuscripts, you start working with the divine office, the more you realize how broad based and how diverse it is from place to place. But there is a basic core that remains the same, but it's history and evolution and some parts of it because, you know, it was all oral. So we don't have written records that are very old. Most of the written records we have are fairly, are relatively recent in terms of the whole history of the office because the office came along, we had daily office long before we had daily mass. Daily mass didn't come around for a long time, but we had daily office from day one. So there is a, a lot of history there, but to get it, unfortunately, you have to pick it up piecemeal from this, that, and the other. I'll give Donna some basic resources for, you know, the standard works, and you can get them in most libraries. Some of them you can even download. Uh, a lot of this stuff is PDF today, so sources like archive.com, you can download a whole bravery. Um, so th there's a lot of material out there if you, if you want to do more reading. Shall we sing the Salve Regina, and then uh, we'll conclude?